When political philosophers talk about freedom and rights, they often gloss over children, who tend to be the forgotten citizens of society. The education of future generations is an issue all political alignments care about deeply. There is a quote I like by the famous Brazilian abolitionist Joaquim Nabucco, who said, Educate your children, educate yourself, in the love for freedom of others. For only in this way will your own freedom not be a gratuitous gift from fate. You will be aware of its worth and will have the courage to defend it. But this begs the question, how should we educate children in a love of freedom? Educating children in a love of freedom could mean a wide variety of methods and things for different people across political spectrum. For some, it means reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every day, or learning about democracy, or learning about your rights as a citizen how to defend them, or even a mixture of all these things. But how are children meant to love freedom if we do not give them an experience of what freedom truly is? Today I will be discussing Maria Montessori, an Italian woman of the early 20th century who pioneered a system of education which emphasized, above all, the freedom of children to learn spontaneously, at their own pace, in a structured environment. You've probably heard the word Montessori today in the context of daycares, but Montessori's are not just places to keep children while their parents work. They are, at their best, a place for young children to cultivate independence, a virtue we can never have in excess. For this reason, I believe Maria Montessori's life and thoughts are of great value not only to libertarians, but people across the ideological spectrum who are concerned with how we want future generations to grow and flourish, and independent people who respect the rights and dignity of others. Maria was born August 31st, 1870, in a place called Chiara Valle. Her father, Alessandro, was a wealthy manager of a state-run tobacco monopoly. Her mother, Anilda, was from a well-respected family and was quite well-educated at a time when women were often given subpar education to their male counterparts, or no education whatsoever. When Maria was born, Italy was a place in which her role in life was largely determined by her family background and, of course, one's gender. Women in wealthy families were expected to become mothers in the backbone of their household, while men pursued careers in both public and private ventures. In 1875, her father was assigned a position in Rome, and the family moved to the Eternal City. Maria's parents enrolled her at a state primary school. Education back in the 19th century was dull. If you think you had it bad, Maria had it much worse. Children sat in classes silently while the teacher poured knowledge into their heads. Children were tasked with memorizing, reciting, and dictating passages from books while keeping silent and sitting still until called upon. The teacher resembled a drill sergeant calling upon people to speak. Spontaneity and creativity was not the aim of the game. Children passively received knowledge, then powered it back to their teacher. But despite this dull method of teaching, Maria was a bright student and had excellent grades. Italian schools were divided into primary and secondary schools. A primary school aims to give children a foundational education, while secondary schools specialise in art, commerce, agriculture and engineering. After secondary school, only a small number of people attended university. Girls would typically be sent to what's called a finishing school. These schools were usually run by religious orders of nuns, where girls learned manners and etiquette with the end goal of attracting a well-to-do husband. But Maria defied the norms of her time and wished to attend a secondary school for engineering, an unheard of idea of the time. A lady? Engineering? Though Maria's father Alessandro was hesitant to send her to what was essentially an all-male field, Maria's mother Vanilda supported her and convinced her father to do the same. While she enjoyed her time studying engineering, Maria decided she instead wished to study medicine. She applied for the University of Rome, where an all-male board promptly turned down her application. But Maria persisted and was eventually allowed to study medicine. But being the only woman was not easy. Her fellow students shunned her. She was not allowed to enter class till all the men were seated. 
and since dissecting a naked body was considered improper for a lady, Marie was forced to perform her dissections alone at night when her male peers had left. But despite all of this ridiculousness, by 1896, she had graduated as one of the first degreed female physicians in Italy. Throughout her studies, she had attained scholarships and graduated with exemplary grades. She was also an active feminist, representing Italy in the International Women's Congress of 1896. At a time of great tension between socialist and non-socialist feminists, Maria argued for unity and to not ignore the plight of any woman, regardless of class. She called upon her fellow feminists to volunteer in their communities to educate those who were illiterate. As a woman of science, she also condemned the commonplace yet absurd stereotypes of women being irrational and inferior to men. Ideally, she envisioned a future of men and women with equal rights and equal duties. While studying, Maria specialized in pediatrics and psychiatry. She volunteered in an asylum. Back then, children were kept in asylums with adults. They were not cared for particularly well or merely kept alive. The majority of these children were deemed feeble-minded. As she tended to these children, Marie started to think that maybe the issue was not the children's supposed feeble-mindedness, but was instead the method of education being used. Intrigued by the conundrum she found, Maria threw herself into researching education, with a special focus on two doctors, Jean-Marc Gaspard Littard and Edouard Sagan, who had both written about their experiences educating deaf children. The methods that these two used would later become the foundations of Maria's teaching philosophy, which I'll get into a little later. By 1898, Maria was lecturing on children in asylums and how the issue was not their disability, but rather how they were taught. She said that they needed more individualized approaches, which took into account their situation holistically. At the turn of the century in 1900, Marie was appointed as the co-director of the orthophrenic school where asylum children were educated. Surprisingly, what were formerly deemed feeble-minded and defective children, under Maria's tutelage, learned to read and write, and even scored higher than average scores in state examinations. Maria's shocking success evoked a multitude of questions. Mainly, how did children formerly labelled as disabled score so well? Why were the popular and accepted methods of teaching children failing so badly? Maria began to hypothesize her methods could be effectively implemented on any child. She wished to pursue this line of questioning, but Maria was trained as a scientist, not a teacher. To remedy this, Maria fervently began researching psychology and educational philosophy. Many biographers comment on the fact that Maria was not trained as a teacher first gave her an advantage. She had no preconceived notions or bias in how children ought to be taught. She came at it objectively. Building on this, she tackled the problem of education from a more scientific perspective, attempting to move away from the abstract, metaphysical discussions of educational philosophy and towards more concrete and objective answers. But to find these answers, she needed an opportunity to test her theories. Thankfully, an opportunity arose in 1907 when Marie was approached by Eduardo Talamo, the director of a philanthropic society that built housing for the poor. One of the buildings in the slums of Rome had run into an issue. While the working-class parents were off of their jobs, there was no one around to supervise the children, who began to roam around the building idly and at times defacing property. The plan was to gather 60 roaming children into one room and pay someone to watch them until their parents returned. Maria leaped at the offer, seeing it as a chance to try out her methods that she had devised while teaching asylum children and studying educational philosophy. Many of her peers were flabbergasted. This work was deemed beneath her, looking after kids all day? At this point, Maria was a professor lecturing. This seemed like a downgrade for her career, if anything. But Maria was determined to implement her new methods and see if they actually worked, regardless of how her peers perceived her work. She was not after money or renown, but a genuine humane urge to help children become educated and independent. As we have already seen, the contemporary wisdom was to sit kids down, 
pour info into their heads and then make them repeat it back to you. Rinse, repeat, all while children sat silently waiting to be called upon. Where you completely rejected this system. The fundamental issue with contemporary education was that it denied children both freedom and the opportunity to become independent. Children, in her view, had a right to strive for independence, a right to activity, and a right to explore the world for themselves. Maria had a reverence for liberty, which she regarded as the personal and yet universal force of life, a force often latent within the soul that sends the world forward. Her system was based upon seeing children not as mere vessels to pour knowledge into, but instead spontaneous and creative individuals who had an innate drive to learn, what she called a divine urge. And because of this, she did not believe children need to be tricked into learning through rewards or punishments. Children were not to be beaten or given gold stars. They will learn without them, as learning is its own reward. Building on the importance of freedom, the role of the teacher was revised dramatically. The teacher was no longer a drill sergeant. In fact, the teacher was no longer a teacher. Marie preferred to use the word directress to avoid the oppressive connotations of teacher. The directress was not there to tell students what to do, but to guide them along with their self-directed and self-motivated journey. According to Maria, children learn in a holistic manner through both the senses and the mind. She set up prepared environments with a variety of different tasks and activities for the children to choose from. These were split between Maria's own learning materials she had devised while teaching asylum children and practical tasks. The learning materials, or teaching aids, were designed from materials such as wood, cardboard and sandpaper to give them a distinctive sense of touch. They were also designed to have self-correcting tasks within them that taught simple concepts through the senses. Children were also encouraged to learn practical tasks such as learning to wash one's hands, tie shoelaces, setting tables and buttoning shirts. While these sound like trivial tasks, they improve motor skills, but they also made it so children did not have to rely upon their parents for absolutely everything. She believed that doing things for oneself built a sense of confidence and dignity which aided children's development into healthy and confident adults. Because of the sheer number and variety of activities, children were now not told where to go and what to do, but instead to choose which activity they wished to tackle first. The teaching aids she used were self-correcting, as previously stated, but this has a deeper meaning. This means children do not require an adult to affirm whether they're doing something correctly or incorrectly. They know themselves that they succeeded or failed. They could independently learn without the teacher even watching. The classroom was a pre-arranged environment in which children could explore and learn at their own pace. Moving around the class and interacting with others was actually promoted. She explained that the task of the educator lies in seeing that the child does not confound good with immobility and evil with activity, as often happens in the case of old-time discipline. I know what some people are thinking. This sounds like you just let kids run wild, but this is not the case whatsoever. Marie observed that when given the choice between the teaching materials she developed and conventional toys, children often chose the former. They actively sought to learn, master, and perfect their skills when given the choice to do so. For Maria, discipline must come from within, not without. She would later write that we do not consider an individual disciplined only when he has been rendered as artificially silent as a mute and as immovable as a paralytic. He is an individual annihilated, not disciplined. True discipline is self-discipline, which can only be cultivated by respecting the child's autonomy and freedom. But of course there are limits. Maria explained that the liberty of the child should have its limits in the collective interest. But as long as this caveat was not breached, she held that the children's freedom, or whatever form it expresses itself, must only be permitted, but also observed by the teacher. Through free movement and choice and expression, children learn to cooperate and respect one another in a creative environment. Another odd-sounding innovation of Maria's is child-sized furniture. This is pretty normal today, so this needs some explaining. Formerly, children sat on adult-sized chairs or benches at adult-sized tables. In Maria's school, furniture was made to be child-sized to make you sit comfortably, but also rearrange the room for various activities. 
Cabinets and shelves are now situated low so children can access them. Children can now manipulate their environment, improving their sensory sensitivity and dexterity. While these sound like a modest innovation at best, it serves a deeper purpose of allowing children to be independent and not rely upon adults yet again. After all, we all have memories of being a child and being too short to reach the cookie jar and having to ask our parents. This all might sound a little bizarre. A bunch of slum kids were introduced to an eccentric educator who goes against all conventions of the time. It sounds a bit like a movie, and maybe it'd make a good movie, who knows. But the most unique and remarkable idea Maria had was that reading and writing did not have to be imposed upon children, but instead learned through a development of skills which would eventually culminate in spontaneous writing. Again, this sounds outlandish, but don't worry, Maria was a woman of science. Children were given letters cut out of cardboard and covered in sandpaper. Maria voiced the sound of the letter as children touched and traced the outline of the cardboard. They heard the sound and mimicked the movements required to write it, firmly placing the letter in their mind. Children would then perform more complex tasks wearing three-letter words, and after enough practice, they just composed words on their own without any help. One day, when on the roof allowing the children to play, she handed a piece of chalk to one child and asked them to draw a picture of a chimney. After doing so, the child stepped back for a second, and then wrote on the pavement the word mano, hand in Italian. In a moment of glee, he exclaimed, I can write, I can write, and began writing some more words. Other children then joined in, realizing that they were also capable of writing, something many of their parents might not have been able to do. Her claims of spontaneous writing were met with skepticism, but today the process had been repeated time and time again in Montessori schools across the world. By 1908, she had resigned her position as a lecturer at the University of Rome and committed herself wholly to what she dubbed the cause of the child. Following her success in the slums, more schools were established throughout Rome. While her schools were intended to be for the disadvantaged, her methods were appropriated for both the middle and upper class children. What became to be known as the Montessori method or system was not for any particular kind of child. In Maria's eyes, it was for all children. She wrote that, The fixed characteristics of a species do not change, they can only vary. With this, Maria was assured her method could be applied to children across the globe, regardless of race, class, gender, religion, or any denominator you can think of. Spreading this vision of a great revolution in education that emphasized the freedom of the child, from this point forth became her life's work. By 1910, Maria was garnering attention not only in Italy, but throughout Europe and America. To spread her methods and findings, Maria lectured and wrote several books documenting experiences and explaining what came to be known as the Montessori system, or method. Worried some might misconstrue or misuse her methods, Maria kept a tight hold on the Montessori education system and personally prepared and trained Montessori directresses. She held international teacher training programs in which people came from across the globe to be trained in Montessori system, from countries like Germany, Australia, India, the US, parts of Africa, my home country, Ireland. Come 1912, Montessori schools had opened in France, Australia, China, Japan, India, Mexico, Syria, and of course, the United States. Maria's life became inordinately more busy. So much so, while reading about her, I was wondering if she ever had an actual moment to herself. She truly was wholly dedicated to promoting the education of children across the globe. She visited America in 1913, where she met opposition to her methods from adherents of the progressive education movement, which had begun to dominate American schools and universities. People such as John Dewey and William Hurd Kilpatrick heavily criticized Montessori, which damaged the early Montessori movement in America, and led to a not resurging in popularity until the 50s. Despite setbacks in America, the Montessori movement grew in the UK, Netherlands, Italy, and especially in Spain, prompting Maria to live there for the next 20 years until the outbreak of the Civil War, eventually causing her to flee the country. There is some controversy about Montessori in Italy and her involvement with the fascist government of Benito Mussolini. Seeing the accomplishments of the Montessori system, Mussolini decided to meet with Maria in 1924. And with the support from the government, Montessori schools were set up throughout Italy yet again. 
The Minister for Education, Giovanni Gentile, talked about the kinship between fascism and Montessori. So, is Maria Montessori a fascist, or at least some sort of fascist sympathizer for her efforts under Mussolini? I don't think so. Throughout her life, Maria described herself as apolitical. She only wished to establish her schools that she believed in the long run would greatly benefit children. She would take support from any source she could procure and establish schools in any country, regardless of ideology. But, and this is a really big but, she would only do so as long as she had sole control over her system, and she was the final arbiter in any issues which arose. She did not accept any sort of infringements upon her system. It was hers and hers alone. When Mussolini wished for children to wear fascist youth uniforms to school and take loads of loyalty along with the teachers, Maria flat out refused. In her eyes, education had nothing to do with politics. Education is about preparing children for life. Politics is not welcome in the classroom. Angered, Mussolini placed Maria under surveillance until she eventually fled the country. And following this, Mussolini quickly shut down the Montessori schools. A similar issue had previously arose in Spain when Maria yet again refused to involve herself in politics over the issue of Catalonia independence in the 20s, despite being handed to take a side. She was always apolitical. It is a true testament to the stupidity of Mussolini and his fascist friends that he supported an educational movement that was so far away from his own ideology. The Montessori system was centered around the importance of freedom, pioneered by a woman who was a cosmopolitan who wished to spread her ideas across the globe because of her belief in the fundamental equality of all children, regardless of race. It seems like a true hypernationalist, Mussolini didn't really pay much attention to what Montessori said. He just liked her because she was Italian. Her system of education was ill-suited for the fascist utopia Mussolini wished to create, and thank God. On the other hand, it is indicative of Maria's political naivety that she would work with such an irredeemable and vile system. This is made even more curious by Maria's staunch opposition to war and her goals of world peace. In 1932, Maria lectured on the topic of peace and education at an International Montessori Congress in France. Lasting peace, she argued, was to be achieved through education. She explained that preventing conflict is the work of politics, establishing peace is the work of education. This lecture was converted into an essay and republished and she delivered the same lecture yet again in Switzerland, Belgium, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Later, about 1950-1951, Maria would be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, but sadly, she was not awarded one. After leaving Italy in 1936, Maria settled outside Amsterdam in the Netherlands, which to this day is still the home of the Association Montessori Internationale. During this period, Maria continued to travel across the globe to spread her system through lecturing and teaching new directresses. Her travels took her as far as India in 1939, where she planned to begin lecturing in Madras and then tour across the country. However, these plans were cut short by the advent of World War II. When Italy joined the war on the side of the Axis, Britain interned all Italians in the UK and the colonies. Since India was still part of the British Empire, Maria was confined to Madras. But admirably, the Indian government allowed her to travel abroad to give lectures and train new Montessori directresses. After the end of World War II, Maria returned to Europe and spent the next six years again traipsing the globe, spreading the Montessori method, with an unwavering and compelling sincerity that she had carried with her since her first school was established in the slums of Rome. Eventually, she passed away in the Netherlands at the age of 81 in 1952, after living possibly one of the most busy and international lives of any person of the 20th century. Today, there are around 20,000 Montessori schools worldwide, with 5,000 of those being located in the US. Montessori schools offer an alternative to the standard kindergarten education, and despite excessive government regulation, Montessori schools are still growing in number to this day. Montessori schools also boast an impressive list of alumni, including the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Google, Larry Page, the political activist Helen Keller, 
former first lady icon Jackie Kennedy, and the Grammy award-winning singer Taylor Swift, and a huge number of other people, like Stephen Curry, the basketball player. Marie was explicitly an apolitical person, so we cannot say she was a libertarian. To label her as such would be disrespectful to her wishes. What we can say is that there is a lot within her educational philosophy which resembles libertarian ideals. Her system of education is fundamentally individualist. Each child is given as much freedom as possible. Children choose their own activities and choose the pace they wish to learn and work at. The teacher, or more accurately, the directress or guide, does not exist to command children. Their job is to prepare a structured environment in which children can express their individuality and spontaneity. Unlike the traditional education Mary went through herself, the Montessori system encouraged movement, play, and interaction with others. Despite this, detractors of the Montessori system criticized Montessori as a system which overemphasized individualism to the detriment of collaboration and socialization. But Maria had no qualms with children collaborating and working together. Children are encouraged to help one another and respect one another's autonomy. I began the show by quoting Joaquim Nabucco, who believed teaching children love of freedom was the best way to ensure freedom for future generations. I believe the Montessori system is a living embodiment of Joaquim's advice. Maria Montessori was an amazing person who put her heart and soul into fighting for children's right to spontaneous action. Her method knew no geographical or political boundaries. She spent her entire life constantly traveling throughout the world to spread her teachings, making her a true cosmopolitan. Her philosophy of education was revolutionary at the time, and still is to this day in some ways. By putting freedom and spontaneity at the forefront of her philosophy, Maria aimed to educate children not through dry, academic, or arbitrary tasks, but instead by giving them a taste of life's animating force, freedom. For this reason, and a whole host of others I have listed throughout today's episode, I believe Maria Montessori should be admired and studied by libertarians of all stripes for her tireless efforts to bring a world of peaceful, respectful, and independent individuals, all through changing education. Thanks, Mill, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.